If you turn over to Romans chapter 16, we will read the text and then uh, begin our way through this uh, last chapter of Romans. Someone asked how long we've been in this book, and I said, I don't know. I know it's 148 messages, so I don't know how long that is, but (laughs) you can figure that out on your own. Um, But it's been uh, a real blessing to, to take time just go through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and see God unfold his truth to our hearts. So as you turn over to Romans chapter 16, I gave you an assignment last week to read this, and and, uh, we're going to work our way through part of it today. So he starts off there, and this is his closing greetings, very personal, from the Apostle Paul. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centuria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks But all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They're very well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristo, Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Trypho, uh, Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Anistrichus, Philegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet also, greet uh, Philogus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions. And create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. 
And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and, and Jason and Sospatar, my kinsmen. I, uh, Tertius, wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. That's chapter 16. Uh, I don't know if the air's off, but if we can turn that on, I'd appreciate it. Um, so as we open up this chapter and we begin to look at it, as I said last week, a lot of times this chapter is overlooked because chapter 15 ends with amen, and most people think, well, he's just listing a bunch of names here. What does this mean? But it's very uh, intentional what Paul is doing here. He, he really wants us to see his heart in so many different ways. And we've gone over this. We've saw, seen his unifying heart, his satisfied heart, his bold heart, his ministering heart, his glorifying heart, his missionary heart, his planning heart, his praying heart. And last week we looked at his giving heart. And he's taught us some deep doctrinal truths as we've gone through this book. And Paul was definitely a theologian, but he wasn't a theologian who just had his nose in books all the time and never cared about people. He was very relational. And a lot of us have to take note of that. You know, some of us, our personalities are not given to be in big crowds of people or like all the attention. That's fine, but that doesn't give us an excuse to hide away and never to have any interaction at all with people. Paul did just the opposite. He was interested in people. He probably showed more interest in people than anyone in the Bible except Christ. And so last week we looked at Paul's giving heart and we said the difference that it makes in the way we give is, first of all, have you given yourself to the Lord? Have you become a Christian? Have you come to Christ? Because you can give and give and give, but if you haven't made that first step of salvation, all the giving doesn't mean anything to anybody, including God. And so I trust that you've made that first step. And then the second thing that we noticed about Christians is because they've given themselves to the Lord, they've come to Christ for salvation, they can then much easier give themselves to others as a consequence of giving themselves to the Lord. We know that we're called to serve one another. And, and Paul wasn't distant from that. He didn't say, oh, I'm the Apostle Paul. I don't, I don't deal with you small people down there. I'm just going to hold up and write more of the New Testament. No, he constantly had relationships with people. He knew their names. He knew their spiritual state. I mean, if you turn over to Philippians 
Chapter 1, verses 7 to 11, just listen as I read this for us. It says, this is Paul speaking. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. Then he says this in verse 8, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I read that verse this past week and I thought, you know what? I need to repent. (laughs) I don't know if I yearn (laughs) for you all in the way that Paul did. Just being honest. But he had a real affection. He says in verse 9, and it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that, why? You may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That was Paul's heart. He had a real love for people, especially the people of God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, he writes this. I love this because it kind of depicts the nature of his ministry. He says, but we were gentle among you. You know, sometimes as ministers, as pastors, as elders, we need to stop and remember that we're called to be gentle. I've found myself in my ministry at times saying, I'm just going to speak the truth. (laughs) I'll do it in love, but hey, you know, it is what it is. And then you look around and there's bodies spread all over the place, you know, but you spoke the truth. That's not really wise. To do that, and hopefully we learn from our mistakes. But Paul says we were gentle among you. This is how gentle he was. Listen, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Have you ever seen a mother with a newborn baby? How protective they are, how careful they are. You know, when's the last time you went up to a, a newborn baby, a, a mother holding her newborn baby, and say, "Hey, can I hold the baby?" And they say, "Sure, here," and they throw it at you. They would never do that. Right? They would never do that. Why? They, 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 they care. They love. In verse 8, he says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only, look at this, the gospel of God, but also our own selves. I think the modern day church has to take a look at that verse and go, Wow, do we do that? Are we, we, are we willing to share our own selves with people, not just the gospel? Are we willing to get dirty? Are we willing to go out and love people for who they are rather than saying, well, once you get cleaned up and come into the church, then we'll love you? You know, we're called as Christians to reach out to people in love with the gospel of Christ, but we're also called to share our own selves with them. And he closes off that verse 8. He says in Seth. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, because you had become very dear to us. Very dear to us. You know, I thank God that we're in a church that, you know, is not this big conglomerate corporation <laughs> where you can come and go each week and nobody even knows you're here. I praise God that we're maybe a smaller congregation where, you know what, when you don't show up on a Sunday, somebody notices Somebody wonders, hey, I wonder how brother so-and-so is or sister so-and-so that didn't see him last week. 
Somebody notices. That's so important. And you think of the New Testament church. It says they met in houses. So it was probably even a more intimate meeting than ours is every Sunday. Maybe 10, 12 people. 15 people, 20 people, maybe at the most, would meet. Why did they do that? They did that because they were interested in investing in each other. They were interested in sharing themselves with each other. You know, the church used to be the hub of society. Now you're lucky if the church is one of the spokes on the wheel. You know, we have all this other stuff that we're caught up in. We're, we're caught up in sports. We're caught up in this. We're caught up in hobbies and crafts and making more money and doing all this stuff. You know, and if we can fit church into our, our, our schedule somewhere along the week, at least we can check that box and say, okay, God, at least I went to church on Sunday. That's not Christianity. It says they met daily in the house to house. They loved each other so much in the New Testament, they couldn't stay apart. And I think that we really need to stop and question our own schedules and our own priorities and say, where is Christ on this. He also writes in Titus chapter 3, verse 15, Paul writes this, all who are with me send greetings to you. And then he says this, greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. See, when you read this chapter, it might seem just like a bunch of names. It's a long list of names. But you know what? Paul had a incredible love for these people. They weren't just a list of names. He knew each one of these individuals. He knew where they were spiritually. He knew what their family was going on, what was going on with their family. And so Paul wants us to know that he's interested not just in doctrine, that's very important, but he's also interested in people. You know, and when you you come to a, a church or you go to a church, you can tell a lot about a church just by how their people react to you if you're new. Does anybody even talk to you? Does anybody even ask you where you're from or are you just visiting? Now, we don't want to harass people when they come. <laughs> but even more importantly than that, does the leadership approach you? Does the, does the leadership take time to say hello or to get to know you or to ask you? You know, I've been in a lot of churches where, you know, the pastor closes the book and he walks out that door and you don't see him till next week. That's not what we're called to be as ministers or as Christians. We're called to have some interaction in between our meeting times. And I thank God that we're part of a church that has a lot of that. But when Paul lists names, he does so in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. He lists a bunch of names there. He, he does so at the end of the book of Colossians in chapter 4, verses 7 to 18. He lists a bunch of people there. He even lists a bunch of people at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 19 to 22. He has a great affection for people. And I think this chapter, in chapter 16... The word greet, uh, you know, appears here in the New Testament 19 times. And 17 of those 19 times, the word greet is used by Paul. 
Uh, this list consists of 33 names. 24, as I said last week, were in Rome. 17 are men, 7 are women. Uh, the apostle mentions two households, the mother of Rufus, the sister of uh, Nereus. Nine of the people mentioned were with Paul in Corinth. Eight of them were men. One was a woman. I mean, he had a, an incredible way to kind of build up other people with relationships. And I think he desires the same from us. The other thing we notice is that he didn't determine his friendships on the basis of their intellectual capacity or their, their theological literacy. I mean, what makes this list of those he knew in the Church of Rome so amazing was the fact that, you know what, he had never been to Rome. <laughs> and yet it seems like he knew these people like their own family. Most of the people he mentions are those that he had met on his ministry journeys, on his missionary journeys, and subsequently that maybe they moved to Rome. But Paul knew where each friend was not only geographically, but he also knew where they were spiritually. I mean, when you think of maintaining that many lists of people, it can be overwhelming. It takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of effort. I mean, you can imagine Paul, you know, asking questions. Where's so-and-so? Where's this guy? Where's that guy? How are they doing now? Why? Because he was interested in people. He cared and he loved people. And that's really the basic bottom line of the gospel message, right? Is the idea that we're called to love people. He listed many women in his group. And in the culture of the day, I mean, women weren't highly thought of. But Paul thought highly of them. He mentions Phoebe. He calls her a servant, a saint, great help. Verses 3 and 4, he mentions Priscilla and Aquila. And he says, they even risked their lives. They put out their necks for me. So when you look over that list of people... I mean, you can do a study on each one and come up with a lot of information on each one. But I think that it's, it's more important that we point out the simple fact that, you know what, this isn't just a list of people. It's a list of people that Paul loved. That Paul loved very much. You look at verse 13, he talks about Rufus. And you say, well, you know, uh, who is that? Well, Mark fifteen twenty one identifies Simon of Cyrene as the father of Alexander and Rufus. So couple that with the fact that Mark wrote this, uh, wrote his gospel to Rome, <clears throat> and we conclude that Rufus was the the son of Simon of Cyrene, who actually carried the cross of Christ. Uh, William Barclay talks about this. He, he mentions Paul's remembrances. He says, Now if a man is identified by the names of his sons, it means that although he himself may not be personally known to the community to whom the story is being told, the sons are. To what church did Mark write 
this gospel. Almost certainly he wrote it for the church of Rome. And he knew that the church would know who Alexander and Rufus were. He was the son of that Simon who carried the cross of Jesus. And so he loved the church. Paul loved the church. And he wants us to understand more than anything, this love is something that we should have as well. Well, how do you have this kind of love? How do you, in your life, cultivate this kind of love for people? Well, I think, first of all, you have to be people persons. You have to enjoy being around people. Have you ever met a businessman who just, you know, it seems some of these guys, they never forget a a name. You know, you can go into a car dealership and, and then come back, you know, months later, and they just know your name. It's just amazing to me. But they know that that's a key. That's, that's a contact. That's a way of, of showing somebody that, you know what, I care enough to remember your name. Now, some of us are good at remembering names. Some of us aren't. But I think we need to work harder at that. We need to be reminded that, you know what, the names of people around us must be important to us. Uh, we should remember them because we care for them. I mean, can you imagine if I said, you know, if I just met you and I said, yeah, and, and this is my wife, um, uh, what's your name again? I mean, you would go, whoa, what's wrong with this guy? Right? Well, names are important. So you have to be a people person. You also have to be affectionate. Um, Charles Wendall tells a story in one of his books. After a Wednesday night prayer meeting, he said this uh, big six-foot-five biker dude was at his Bible study prayer meeting on a Wednesday night. And afterwards, he came up to him and he said, you know what, Pastor Swindoll, there's always been something that I've wanted to do to you. And Chuck Swindoll said, I didn't know what was coming next because I thought, boy, you know, I've said a lot of things over the years. Who is this guy? And he said, this guy put his helmet on the chair and he went up and he just gave him this big bear hug. And he thought, wow, you know, it was just showing that, you know what, what, what an affectionate way of, of, of showing somebody that you love them. You know, whether you're comfortable with that or not, I think sometimes we need to grow comfortable with it. We need to understand, you know, you know, I learned a long time ago, you know, I've, I've tried, you know, I'm just not that way. I don't give hugs. I don't do this. People don't really care. You know, when people want to give you a hug, they're going to give you a hug. And, you know, I've kind of grown into that. It's fine. You know, it's not traumatizing. It's not anything, you know. Uh, it's, it's actually sometimes kind of enjoyable. It's just like, oh, wow, they're giving me a hug, you know. And it, it, the reason it is because it's showing their love for you as an individual, as a person. And, you know, Paul testifies over and over again in the books that he writes that were there were people in the church who loved him so much. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 15, they said they would have plucked out their own eyes for him. It's amazing. And here, he talks about Rufus in verse 13, and he says, hey, you know what? She's been a, a, a mother to me also. I mean, what does that mean? I mean, how was she a mother to Paul? How did she minister to Paul? Maybe it was in Antioch when he was first getting started. Maybe it was in one of those little towns where he got beat up after he preached. She came along and saw him and helped him out. 
We don't know, but Paul used, could have used a little mothering, and she was there to do that. I remember early on in my ministry at First Baptist Church in Fremont as a youth pastor, I had probably three or four ladies, older ladies in the church, and this was before I was married, before I met my wife, and I was colorblind, and, you know, I, I couldn't. I mean, they would just cringe when I would walk into church on Sunday mornings. And I remember one of them, Mrs. Hobbs was her name. She said, Pastor, we're taking you to Macy's or wherever it was, and we're going to get you some clothes. And I said, well, what's wrong with this? They're just not, it's not good. It's not, it doesn't look good. You're never going to get a wife if you continue to dress this way. And I said, well, I'm not really looking for one, but whatever. And I remember, you know, those ladies took me out, and they said, well, what do you want? I said, I, I really don't care. I it doesn't matter to me. I'm colorblind. It doesn't, I don't care. And I remember they took a whole afternoon and they t- took me in there and I paid for the clothes. I think maybe they bought a couple shirts for me, but I paid for them. But they were willing to say, okay, now we're going to get you this suit and this shirt will go with this suit. And I remember they even did things that my wife still does. I mean, they put all the, the, the clothes together on one hanger. You know, you had the suit and the, the slacks and then you had the tie and the, the shirt. And I, you can't really mess this up, okay? I mean, it's all together. And one of them even joked, I think, maybe we ought to sew little A and B and, you know, so they all match. Um, that's just the way it was. But I, but I think back on that. What were they doing? They were mothering me, you know, and, and I really appreciated it. And it was something that, that, that showed me that they, they loved me. You know, Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 29, he says, I tell you the truth, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me. And the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. In other words, he's talking about this this. this blessing from God. If you're willing to sacrifice just a little bit to bless someone else, God's going to definitely bless you. Now, this isn't name it and claim it. This isn't modern, you know, prosperity gospel stuff. But I bet you Paul had hundreds of mothers all over. And I bet you they blessed him in a way that only they could. And so you see here that Paul was definitely a person who enjoyed people. He loved people. Well, now you look down here at verse 17. And like I said, you can do your own study on all those. We'd be in here for years if we went through all these names. So, but it's, it's important to understand that the next thing here is not just Paul's loving heart, but Paul's protective heart, Paul's protective heart. And this is very important. Because he lists all these people, greet this person, greet that person. But then he comes right back to what his real real heart is for them. It's a heart of protection. You know, and if you love somebody, you're going to want to protect them. You know, as, as parents, you know, I remember, you know, raising our daughter. We want to protect her. As grand, grandparents, we want to protect them. Why? Because we love them. We care for them. And see, this, this section is very forceful. He goes right back to, you know, he says, okay, I've been loving enough. Now I'm going to tell you the way it is. And he, he kind of zeroes right in on some things. <clears throat> and look at what he says here in verse 17. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, 
to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. See, this is Paul's protective heart coming out of his loving heart. You know, you can say you love somebody all, all day long, but if you're not willing to protect that person, sometimes you have to say some hard things to people. Why? And you do it because you, you want to protect them. At the height of the Reformation, Martin Luther was challenging the corruptions of the church. And he was doing so by sound biblical preaching. And Pope Leo X issued a papal bull against Luther. And it complained, and these are the words that he used, a wild boar is ravishing God's vineyard. Luther was not doing that, of course. He was just exposing error with truth. He was kind of like an Old Testament prophet, you might say. Telling a wayward church, calling it back to its roots. But you know what? Paul has a warning here. And he warns against two specific things. He warns, first of all, about those who cause divisions. And what Paul has in mind here is he speaks of those who cause divisions. It's not so much people who, you would say, introduce some heretical teaching into the church though that's part of it. But he really has in mind here those who divide churches into factions that will be loyal only to themselves. Often these people are the people who show up in a congregation suddenly. Usually they come from another church where they probably most likely cause trouble there as well. They're kind of hesitant to tell you where they've come from. They don't want to give you that information. Maybe they're afraid you'd follow up and, and actually ask the previous church how they left. A lot of these people are knowledgeable. Usually they come with very uh, considerable abilities. They're leaders in the sense that they have a certain enthusiasm about it. Boy, I'm here. I want to get there. I want to help. I want to serve. And they get people to follow them very easily. Generally, they're used to teaching. They come in and they say, well, when can I teach? They're very quick to arrive there. Even though the Bible warns us to make full proof of those who want to be teachers, people like that are usually welcomed in churches, especially smaller churches. And they're usually quickly put to work because most churches need able people who are actually willing to serve. But when you take the short route, usually problems develop rather quickly. Usually these new teachers begin to push a particular point of doctrine 
maybe to the exclusion of equally important truths. Usually these people are critical of people who don't see things the way they do or don't join their little cause, whatever it might be. And when everyone does not go their way, and not all people do, basically they begin to divide. They're not serving God, they're serving themselves. They begin to pull most of their followers away from the church that they just came into and they begin to say that God has given them a vision to start a new study or a new church, a new fellowship. And that fellowship is always presented as a more biblical, more faithful, truer church than the one that they're currently going to. Now, we've all had that experience if you've been in church for any period of time. And as elders and as leaders within this church, we're very careful. We're not, we want people to be vetted before they assume the role of teaching. We don't just throw somebody in the pulpit willy-nilly and say, oh, let's see what he has to say. Because we, we understand the seriousness of what it means to open up the Word of God and to expound the Scriptures in a way that is biblical. And we don't want to give just anybody that opportunity. So these people are, are people who cause division. Secondly, they're people who put, Paul says, obstacles in other person's ways. And you say, well, what does he mean by that? The other danger Paul warns the Roman church against is is those who are going to put obstacles in your way contrary to the teaching that you have learned. The word there in the Greek is scandalon. We get the word scandal in the English from it. Um, He's not thinking of scandalous behavior here. That may be a problem as well. But rather the scandal of adding things to the gospel. And when you add things to the gospel, it gets in the way of those who are merely trying to obey the Bible and, and follow Christ. That's all they want to do. But there's certain people that come along and say, well, you've got to add this. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. See, this is what Jesus dealt with, right, in the New Testament when he was dealing with Pharisees. They were what they were doing, and, and, and he spoke so harshly against them because they imposed all kinds of extreme extra-biblical requirements on their disciples. And then they'd look at Jesus' disciples and say, well, Jesus, why are your disciples doing this or doing that? Very critical. They required hundreds of detailed points of Sabbath observance. Strict controls on your diet whether days were holy or not. All kinds of things. And that's why Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, verses 4 and 5, listen what he says. He says, They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. Right there, that's a red flag. You know, that's a red flag. 
He also admonishes them directly. He says in chapter 23, verse 13 of Matthew, listen to this. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites, he calls them. You shut the kingdom in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. See the purpose here? The purpose is a scandal, and it's, it's, it's something that is, is drawing people away from the kingdom of God. Now, people like this don't deny the essentials of the Christian faith, but they bring other things that are not in the Bible and insist on conformity to those areas. And that's always dangerous. It's where a lot of legalistic mindsets come from. In the Greek text of this verse, Paul uses the word para, which means alongside of, and a word for teaching. And he says they come alongside. They bring other teaching alongside of what is taught in Scripture. That's why we're a grace Bible church. We believe that this book holds the truth, and we're not going to teach from another book. We're not going to just get up here and give our opinions. We're going to seek to fill this pulpit with men who are willing to expound the truth that was given to us in the Bible. So what he's thinking of here in this chapter 16 when he's warning them, he's saying, be careful these people. They're going to cause divisions and they're going to bring something alongside of the truth that you've already been taught. Is it okay after church on Sunday to go home and watch a sporting event? Or go to the park? Or go to the grocery store? Well, you may be surprised, but there are some believers who believe, oh, no, no, no. It's the Sabbath, and we have to honor the Sabbath. So we can't do anything. Well, even when they say they're not going to do anything, they do stuff. They drove to church. I mean, under the Sabbatarian law, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be acceptable. You know, so there's always this, this legalistic mindset out there and you have to guard against it as believers because at first it sounds kind of good you know this is what what jesus refers to as wolves in sheep's clothing right he calls them that paul calls them that and basically these are people who come into the church who portray themselves as one thing when really they're not they're another And he has harsh things to say against a wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, First of all, their, their methodology and their motivation. Their motivation first, when such people come into the church, Paul describes they come in as angels of light. They don't come in announcing, hey, I'm here, I'm an errant teacher, I don't have the, I'm going to add stuff to the gospel. Let me teach. They don't do that. No, usually they'll come in and they'll warm up to the leadership and, oh, yeah, yeah, I agree with everything. I agree with everything. But you can always tell because when they begin to ask and appeal, well, when can I teach? When can I teach? Well, we, we believe in kind of slow walking that here at Grace, so it may not be for a while. 
you can sense the frustration. And usually they'll say, well, you don't understand. God has called me to teach. And I've literally had to tell individuals who've come to our church with that kind of attitude, well, that's fine, but I know that he hasn't called you to teach here. (laughs) At least not right now. And they usually don't stick around very long. See, they they present themselves as teachers who want to instruct and help other believers in the church to move forward. They care for them. They want to experience them the, they want them to experience the fullness of God. But Paul says what they really want to serve is their own appetites. He says they're in it for themselves. He says they don't want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are they interested in serving? They're serving themselves, their own appetites. John MacArthur writes this. He says, no matter how seemingly sincere and caring false teachers or preachers may appear to be, they are never genuinely concerned for the cause of Christ or for his church. They are often driven by self-interest and self-gratification, sometimes for fame, sometimes for power over their followers, always for financial gain, and frequently for all of those reasons. Many of them, he continues, enjoy pretentious and luxurious lifestyles, and sexual immorality is the rule more than the exception. These are sometimes elders and pastors who want to dominate their congregation or evangelists who make a great deal out of money or or living lavishly, buying the latest Learjet because God has told them they need it to get around the world and share the gospel. They would never think of flying coach because they're emboldened in their greed, in their wealth. Philippians chapter 3 These teachers are described in Philippians and Jude. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Jude chapter, I mean verse 12, Jude 12 and 13 says, These men are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain. Blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit or and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. Wandering stars from whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. I mean, no wonder Paul warned the Romans against these false teachers. But he also points out not just their motivation, he points out their methodology He says in verse 18, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Problem with a lot of our churches today, unfortunately, is their pulpits are filled with very gifted men, (laughs) very good-looking men, men who can talk about anything. I, I honestly believe there are some men in the pulpits today, they could get up behind their, their pulpit and say, Mary had a little lamb. Its fleece was white as snow. And recite the whole, and people would just be dumbfounded, like, wow, wasn't that wonderful? 
See, we live in a culture, unfortunately, where it's celebrity-driven. And that doesn't exclude the church. There's a lot, of, a lot of people who are drawn to a church because of their celebrity pastor. He used to be this, or he used to be that, or, or whatever. See, the only judge by which you judge a minister of God is what comes out of their mouth. Is it smooth, flattering talk? That I compare it to eating sushi. You know, you ever been hungry and go to eat sushi? I like sushi. I go there once in a while. My wife likes it. Hungry, boy, you order the stuff and you eat it. An hour later, it's like you didn't eat anything. It's like you're still hungry. It just doesn't fill you up. It's not like sitting down and eating a pot roast or a steak and a potato. Or, you know, it's, just, it's sushi, right? I mean, it's good and it's probably healthy for you, whatever. But in the long run, it just doesn't last. It doesn't, you know, I like food that sticks, you can probably tell, to the ribs, right? So I need, need to eat a little less of it probably. But the important thing is, is that these people are... are by their smooth talk, they're flattering. They're, they're seeking to deceive the minds, not just of anybody, but who does Paul say? The naive. Can you imagine trying to take advantage of a naive person? Maybe a child or someone who's mentally challenged and you're, you're purposely out there to deceive them? That's the idea here. That word smooth talk captures the idea behind the Greek. It's a, it's a youthful thing to understand. It's a, it's a compound word in the Greek. It's based on the noun logos, which means word or talk. And the other part of it, krestos, means kind, loving, merciful, easy to bear. So when they talk, boy, it's just tickling the ears. You're just enthralled with what they're saying. The term refers to moral talk that appears to be kind and loving. Therefore, it requires a wise person to discern what's really going on here. What are they really saying? Because you have to have the ability to discern, hey, this may all look great, but you have to have the ability to discern this is not what it appears to be. And this goes on all the time. So you have to be concerned with their motivation, their methodology, Paul says. And then he points out here, and I don't think this is in your outline, but you can just uh, take this and we'll close with this. He suggests three protective measures that need to be taken by biblically oriented churches. In verse 17, he says, first of all, you have to watch out for these people. Watch out. You have to be alert. Um. Paul has no sympathy with theological sleepiness. He doesn't care. He's like, you've got to be on your guard. It doesn't matter who the pastor is, who the teacher is. You have to be on your guard. They don't get a pass. Christians are to make a mental note of those who are off base. And I, I, I'm thankful that I'm in a church where routinely sometimes... People come up to me and say, you know, you said this. Or you know what? You said this verse. That verse doesn't even exist. What did you mean? I said, oh, I must misquote it. Whatever. 
Thank God that we're in a church where people are, are willing to confront that way. You're not just going to sit there and, well, oh, I guess the guy up there said it, so it must be true. The Bible says, no, we are, we are called to be like Bereans. We're called to study this book for ourselves. Don't you dare come in here on a Sunday morning and just assume whatever's said from the pulpit is gospel. That you don't have that luxury. We have to be on guard. So he says, you know what? Watch out for these kind of people. And then he says in verse 17 also, he says, keep away from them. Avoid them. <laughs> you don't engage these kind of people. See, and, and sometimes we get this mixed up because we want to be loving to everybody. And, but you know what? When you realize someone is being divisive or someone is off doctrinally, you don't, you don't need to engage them. You're, you're perfectly within your rights to say, you know what? I'm avoiding that person like the plague because they believe some weird doctrine. See, this is where we've really made, I think, a mistake in our modern-day churches. I mean, how many times have you heard people say, well, you know, I need to go to the movies so I can stay informed, you know, on the modern-day culture, so that's why I go to the movies. Or, you know, I go and hang out with these people so I can stay in touch with when we have no business doing that. There's a lot of people with, even within the church that read all kinds of books. Well, I want to read the book just to see what it says. Well, if you know it's a heretical book, why would you ever even entertain it? See, and this, this comes, I believe it comes literally out of our family upbringing. I mean, as a Christian parent, as someone who lives for Christ, you know, the idea is, as well, you know, somehow... We're just going to thrust our kids out there into the, the secular world and pray for the best. Well, as parents, we have to stop and say, wait a minute, have we equipped these kids? Do they have a biblical foundation upon which they're standing? Are we willing to expose them to erroneous thought, thought that is not found in the Bible, secular information that could overwhelm them? in their education process? I mean, as a church, we scratch our heads and say, we don't understand why all these kids go to college and then they walk away from Christ. I mean, what's so hard to understand? When you're sending your child to a secular school and they're not equipped to deal with that, they're going to get run over. Big time. They're going to get brainwashed. That's what our institutions of higher learning have been doing. That's why the culture is the way it is. I'm all for education. But I would say to any Christian parent, make sure your kids are well-grounded. I would say, you know what? Before you send them off to a secular institution, send them to a, two years to a Bible college. Make sure they're grounded fundamentally in the faith. You know, sometimes as a youth pastor, I used to hear parents, well, you know, we don't, we don't tell Johnny he has to go to school. We don't want to force our faith on him, so we just let him do whatever he wants on Sundays. It's like, well, what kind of thinking is that? That's like buying a plot of land and saying, well, you know, I, I'm hoping corn will grow and strawberries, but I'm just going to let it go and see what happens. And you come back in a couple months and see what happens. You're not going to have corn or strawberries. What are you going to have? You're going to have weeds. See, it's, it's hard. I understand that. It's difficult. But the Bible, right here in verse 17, if you know people are teaching errant doctrine, 
things that are not found in Scripture, keep away from them. Avoid them. And thirdly, it says in verse 19, Paul says, if you want to have, be equipped to deal with all this, he says, be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. He's echoing Matthew 10, 16, where Jesus said, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. It's good advice because our tendency is to be as wise as doves and innocent as serpents. And we need to reverse that. See, when you really love people, as much as Paul loved people, he loved these Romans. He, he desired to protect them. And that's a great example for all of us. We need to love each other in a way that really we're willing to put ourselves out there, put ourselves on the line for others. And you know what? Sometimes that even means we have to speak the truth and we've got to do it in love even though they may not like to hear it. I mean, I think Paul took his cue, really, from his own Lord. He repeatedly, the Lord repeatedly warned against false prophets. He repeatedly warned against false shepherds who would come in, he said, not sparing the flock. He repeatedly warned about false Christs, saying that in the end there will be those who say, here is the Christ, there is the Christ. This is the day we live in, beloved. There will be deception, our Lord warns. And as you read the epistles of Paul, there's warnings all over the place. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 to 15, he says, Be aware of Satan coming in disguised as an angel of light and his ministers as angels of light. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul cries out to the Galatians with such extreme emotion that he, he skips the amenities at the beginning of the book and just, just cries out to them against those who are preaching a false gospel. And he curses them, by the way. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy to set things in order in the church and correct the heresy that is leading people astray and damning their souls with an untrue message. Second Timothy, he warns about the false teachers, the false prophets, their lying teaching. So it's within the nature of Paul for him to do this. And the reason he does it, 1 Corinthians 4 says, because you are my beloved children, I warn you. I warn you. Paul loved God's people. He loved the church. And I pray that as those who belong and are members of Christ's church, that we will share that love, that we will share that concern, that we will be on alert, that we will be willing to reach out to those around us, invite them to hear the gospel, to join the fellowship. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for Paul's heart once again, how it's convicting us. It's convicting me that we need to be more loving. We need to be more about people. But we also need to do that as we stand on truth. You can't compromise in either direction. 
You can't say, well, I just want to love people, so I'm not going to worry about what people believe. Just join hands, and they say they're a Christian, and that's good enough for me. No, we need to stop, and we need to examine what people are saying, because words mean things. And when people are adding to the gospel or taking away from the gospel, your word tells us don't have anything to do with those people. It's not worth the investment. God will deal with them. But we are called to understand and study and celebrate your truth. And so we pray that we would do that in a God-honoring way. We pray for those who are gathered here today. If there's any here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, please let them know the only thing, Lord, that they can do is to cry out to you, to acknowledge their sinfulness before a holy God. Just like the man in the New Testament cried out, and Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer when it's prayed from a sincere heart, God will answer. You may not understand everything about the Bible. You may not understand everything about the church. But the one thing that he desires you to understand is, first of all, that you're a sinner and that he is holy. And the only way that you can have your relationship reconciled with your Creator is through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on a cross, rose the third day, and paid in full the penalty of your sin. And when you come to God and you confess those truths about His Son, He will save you. That's what the Word says. So, Father, we pray that you would just bless our time of fellowship as well across the way. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.